Man, guys, it is. Um, I want to say it's good to see everybody, and that is absolutely true. Um, and I am glad you are under the covers and in your pillows and on your couches and all of that. But um, uh, obviously, uh, Stephen, myself, Cy, Preston, we would all love to be with you. We would all love to be close to you. We would certainly love to be um, in our sanctuary. And um, that's just not possible today. And um, we are supposed to be in John chapter three today, um, making our way out of the birth narrative of Luke and Jesus's birth into the beginning of his ministry. And so um, we are also starting to record the messages every Thursday. And interestingly enough, this last week was our first Thursday. Um, and so uh, we, we did have that on video and thought about using that. But I, I really want to share uh, that message with you as we come back together. I want to make sure that, that the most people are, are available for that. And so um, at least for this week, we're going to jump to um, something completely different. I want to talk about three things today, and I want to be clear about um, about my my goals um, here. Um, it has been a, a long season for, for all of us. Jamie and I even had a 30-minute conversation last night just about, about fatigue, about fatigue in general, about the kind of emotional fatigue that this um, nine to 10 months has laid on us, the, the, the joblessness, the lawlessness, the um, social media uh, aspect. And um, over and over again, we've all said, hey, we're, we're heavy, we're burdened, we're hurting. Um, what I'm gonna say this morning um, has no political bent whatsoever and no, um, I don't want to pressure or turn anybody in any direction at all because that is not my job and I will not engage in it online or from the pulpit. But I do want to tell the people that I care the most deeply about, the most discerning, wise, and biblical things that I can that I can share with you. And they're certainly not going to come for me. I have a list of scriptures. So if you see me turning, I've got my computer as close to my camera as I can get it so it doesn't look weird. Um, so this morning, I want to talk about three things real quick. And I'm actually going to read a story to you because sometimes, I've told you this before, um, people who wrote it or said it first say it better than me. And I think I would do a disservice if I didn't just um, read it to you. Um, as, as events were unfolding this week, I, I was personally overwhelmed and, and hurt and, and, and upset and, and, and had all of these emotions running through me as I saw, as I saw the responses of, of, of Christians and of, of non-Christians, of people I grew up with and people I respect wholly. And I was, I was overwhelmed with pain and, and, and a little bit of despair. I had to say, hey, Jesus, you're going to have to take the stuff that's not of you away from me. Um, and it took me almost two days to find a, a, um, a, a post that I, I was like, wow, yes, yes, this is holy. This is, this is 
from the heart of, of somebody who took the time to pray and seek truth and not listen to the rest. And it was it was quite good. And it was also quite convicting. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. And so the first thing that I want to talk about this morning is hate. And I know that's not a pleasant subject, but I, I want I want us all to hear um, this. Here's what the Bible says about hate. And I know that you guys have heard it, seen it, smelt it, felt it, been victims of it, and maybe shared it. And so let's let's be clear that we're not holier than thou here, not me, not you. Let me read three verses to you. John, 1 John 3, 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, let me repeat that again. 1 John 2, 9, for those of you who want to take notes. Uh, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So if Jesus is the light of the world, right? And we're supposed to be covered in his light, yet we show any kind of hate, you know, toward another individual. We're still in darkness. In 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we love. So the source of our love, right? We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God who he has not seen. This commandment we have, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So listen to me. As believers, we are charged with and challenged with this very thing. That hatred for another individual, regardless the circumstance or the, the, the reasoning, is anti the love of christ and the reason he gave and our worship and our praise and our gatherings are moot and foolish if we cannot be loving now in this post this guy had a remarkable answer to something um he said friends i know that some of you would say to me hey i, I don't hate anyone i'm just angry okay fair or hey I don't hate anyone. I'm just, I'm just bitter. Uh, okay. Hear me. Bitterness, unresolved, unhindered, untainted, unpassed through the Holy Spirit. Bitterness becomes anger. You ready for this? Anger, unrestrained, released without being passed through the Holy Spirit becomes Hate. Hate. And guys, that's not us. Whatever it is, it's not us. All right. So I want us to to dwell in this. And, and here's where I'm going to I'm going to read a story. And I, I don't know any other way to do it, but to just read it. And I hope that you'll stay with me um, as I do. Um, it's one of my favorite stories from one of my favorite Max Lucado books. And I've actually shared this at men's ministry one time. But if you've never read this, he still moves stones. All right. And the premise of this book is that um, 
basically that a, a bruised reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And those are two of the most fragile things in all of nature. They're on the very end of their life. They're at the very end of their rope. And I know all of us sometimes have felt this way. And there are countless characters in the Bible who are at the very bottom, at the very end of what they believe they can handle. And God comes in and restores them from the lion's den. He comes in and snatches them from, from being stoned right outside the temple courts. He, he comes in and helps them when they are grieving and at the well over and over again. These are the people that God reaches. But this one's super interesting. The case of the elder brother. A difficult one because he looked so good, kept his room straight and his nose clean, played by the rules and paid all his dues. His resume was impeccable. His credit was squeaky clean, and he was as loyal as anyone. While his brother sowed his wild oats, he stayed home and sowed the crops. On the outside, he was everything a father could want, but on the inside, he was sour. He was hollow, overcome by jealousy, consumed by anger and blinded by bitterness to catch that consumed by anger blinded by bitterness you remember the story it's probably the best known of all the parables it's the third in a series of three the first began after a shepherd found a sheep there were 99 others and he could have been content but shepherds don't think like businessmen he searched for it when he found the sheep he carried it back cut the best grass and had a party to celebrate the second party was held in front of a house a housewife lost a coin it wasn't her only coin but you would have thought it was by the way she acted. She moved furniture, got out the dust mop, swept the whole house till she found it. And when she did, she ran shouting into the cul-de-sac and invited her neighbors over to celebrate. Then there's the story of the lost son, the boy who broke his father's heart by taking his inheritance and taking off. He trades his dignity for a bottle of whiskey and his self-respect for a pig pen. Then, he, then comes the son's sorrow and a decision to go home. Let me say that line again. Then comes a son's sorrow and a decision to return home. He hopes his dad will give him a job on the farm and an apartment over the garage. What he finds is a father who kept his, his absent son's place set at the table and the porch light on every night. The father is so excited to see his son, he throws a party. We party-loving prodigals love what he did, but it infuriated the elder brother. The older son was angry. That's verse 28 of Luke 15. It's not hard to see why. This guy gets recognition. He gets drunk. He goes broke and he parties and he, he gets the party. He sat outside the house and he pouted. I did that once. I pouted at a party. This is Max, by the way, though I've done it too. A Christmas party. I was in the fourth grade. Fourth graders take parties very seriously, especially when gifts are involved. We had drawn names, and since you didn't know who had your name, you had to drop your hints very loudly. I didn't miss a chance. I wanted a sixth-finger toy pistol that fit in the cleft of your hand and looked like a finger. Honestly, it did. Finally, the day came to open gifts. I just knew I was going to get my pistol. Everyone in the class heard my hints. I tore into the wrapping, ripped open the box, and it was stationary. Western stationary. Paper and envelopes with horses in the corners? Yuck! Probably left over from last Christmas. Ten-year-old boys don't write letters. What was this person thinking? No doubt some mom forgot all the presents until that morning, went to the closet, and rumbled around to come out with stationery. Tie my hands and feet and throw me in the river. I was distraught. I was upset. 
And because of that, I missed the party. I was there, but I pouted. So did the big brother. He too felt he was the victim of some kind of inequity. When he and his father came out to meet, the son started at the top and started listing all of the atrocities of his life. To hear him say it, his woes began the day he was born. I'm going to stop and look right into the camera because nobody's here. I'm going to ask a question. Have you seen, heard, or watched people over and over again, no matter their beliefs, making lists lately about how right they are, how right he is, how right she is, demands and justifications of how we feel? I have served you like a slave for many years, said the older brother, and I've always obeyed your commands. But you never gave me even a young goat to have at a feast with my friends. But your other son who wasted all your money on prostitutes comes home and you kill the fatted calf. It appears that both sons spent time in the pig pen, one in the pen of rebellion, the other in the pen of self-pity. The younger one has come home, but the older one is not. He's still in the slop. He is saying the same thing you said. When the kid down the street got a bicycle and you didn't, he's yelling, it's not fair. That's what Wanda Holloway of Channel View, Texas said. When it looked like her 14-year-old daughter wouldn't get elected to the cheerleading squad, Wanda got angry. She decided to get even. She hired a hitman to kill the mother of her daughter's chief competitor, hoping to so upset the girl that Wanda's daughter would make the squad. Bitterness will do that. It'll cause you to burn down your house to kill a rat. Fortunately, her plan failed and Wanda was caught and sentenced to 15 years. But she didn't have to be put behind bars to be in a prison. Bitterness is its own prison. Black and cold, bitterness denies easy escape. The sides are slippery with resentment. The floor's muddy and anger coats the feet. The stench of betrayal fills the air and stings the eyes and a cloud of self-pity blocks the view of the tiny exit above. Step inside and look at its prisoners. Victims are chained to the walls, victims of betrayal, victims of abuse, victims of the government, the system, the military, and the world. And they lift their chains as they lift their voices and they wail loud and long. They wail. They grumble. They get angry at everyone else. They sulk and the world is against them. They accuse and the pictures of their enemy are darted on the walls. They boast. I followed the rules. I paid played fairly. I'm better than everyone else. They whine. Nobody listens. Nobody remembers. Nobody cares. Angry, sullen, accusatory, arrogant, whiny. Put them all together and it spells bitter. If you put them all in one person, that person is in the pit, the dungeon of bitterness, deep, dark, and asking you to come in. You can, you know. You've been hurt. You've been betrayed. You have a history of rejection. You've been left out. You're living through COVID. You're living through America right now. You're watching our basketball team not win any games. You're seeing your friends lose their jobs. You're a part of people that had to cancel church the day before. You're a candidate for the dungeon, right? You can choose like many to chain yourself to hurt. Or you can choose like some to put away your hurt before they become hate. You can choose to enjoy the party. You have a place there and your name is on a plate. If you are a child of God, no one can take that away, which is precisely what the father said to the older son. Son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. 
And that's precisely what the father says to you. How does God deal with your bitter heart? He reminds you that you what you have is more important than what you don't. You still have a relationship with God and no one can take that away. Nobody can touch it. The brother was bitter because he focused on what he didn't have and forgot what he did. His father reminded him and us that he had everything he'd always had, a job, a place, a name, and an inheritance. The only thing he didn't have was the spotlight. And because he wasn't content, he missed the party. It takes courage to set aside jealousy and rejoice with the achievement of a rival. I'd like to share with you an example of someone who did. I hope I can make it through this, guys. This is always difficult for me. Standing before 10,000 eyes is a man named Abraham Lincoln, a very uncomfortable Abraham Lincoln. His discomfort comes not from the thought of delivering his first inaugural address, but from the ambitious efforts of well-meaning tailors. He's unaccustomed to such attire, formal dress coat, silk vest, black trousers, glossy top hat. He holds a huge ebony cane with a golden head the size of an egg. He approaches the platform with hat in one hand and cane in the other. He doesn't know what to do with either one. In nervous silence that comes after the applause and before the speech, he searches for a spot to place them. He finally leans the cane on the corner of the railing, but he still doesn't know what to do with the hat. He could lay it on the podium, but it would take up too much space. Perhaps the floor? No, that's too dirty. Just then, and not a moment too soon, a man steps forward and takes his hat, returns to his seat, and, and listens to Lincoln's speech. Who was he? Lincoln's dearest friend? The president said of him, he and I are the best of friends in the world. He was one of the strongest supporters of the early stages of Lincoln's presidency. He was given the honor of escorting Mrs. Lincoln to the inaugural ball. As the storm of the Civil War began to boil, many of Lincoln's friends left, but not this one. He amplified his loyalty by touring the South as Lincoln's peace ambassador. He begged Southerners not to secede and Northerners to rally behind the president. His efforts were great, but the wave of anger was greater. The country did divide and the Civil War bloodied the nation. Lincoln's friend never lived to see it. He died three months later after the inauguration. Wearied by his travels, he succumbed to a fever, and Lincoln was left to face the war alone. Upon hearing of the news of his friend's death, Lincoln wept openly and ordered the White House flag to be flown at half-mast. Some feel Lincoln's friend would have been chosen as his running mate in 1864 and would thus have become president following the assassination of the great emancipator. No one will ever know about that, but we do know that Lincoln had one true friend, and we can only imagine the number of times the memory of him brought warmth to a cold Oval Office. He was a model of friendship, but he was also a model of forgiveness. This friend, sorry. <laughs> this friend could easily have been his enemy. Long before he and Lincoln were allies, they were competitors, politicians pursuing the same office. And unfortunately, it is their debates that are better known than their friendship. The debates between Abraham Lincoln and his friend, Stephen Douglas. Sorry, but on Lincoln's finest day, Douglas set aside their differences and he held the hat of the president.
Unlike the older brother, Douglas heard a higher call. And unlike the older brother, he was present at the party. Wise are we to do the same. Wise are we if we rise above our hurts. For if we do, we'll be present at the father's final celebration. A party where no powders will be permitted. Come join the party. I want to be clear. That is not political at all and wasn't intended to be. I'm not talking to anybody out there. I'm talking to us. Because if nothing else matters, this does. I want the people at NBC on Maine to be known for their love and not their hate. I want the people that I care about to be known for their silence and not their storm. I want the people that I love to be known for their peace. One of the hardest things to do is to remain silent when we feel like we're, we're being bombarded. It used to be gossip that went around from ear to ear, like the game telephone, and it would change and never come back. But now it's rampant on everything from TikTok to Instagram to Facebook to telephones to text messages. But I want to go back again to the scripture. Because the second thing that I want to talk about is wisdom. And for now, I believe wisdom looks a lot like silence. I'm not asking you to be completely silent. I'm just saying, listen to the words of some of the wisest people to walk the planet. Proverbs 21, 23. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. Proverbs 18, 13. To answer, I love this, before listening, that is folly and shame. We'll say it again. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. You know what mama used to say, maybe all of your mamas, we got two ears and one mouth so we can what? Listen twice as much as we talk. Maybe we need four ears. <laughs> all right. Proverbs 13, three, the one who guards his mouth protects his life. The one who opens his lips invites his own ruin. And lastly, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent, discerning when he seals his lips. Even a fool can be considered wise if he keeps silent. There's one phrase that I've always remembered. Better to be silent and be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. Guys. We should only speak when we know. I, I've read a story over and over again about the woodcutter's wisdom, and it's the, the, the basis is say only what you know. The last problem that we're having right now is this. Everything sounds so real. Everything looks so real. Everything that we hear from every side is so well-versed and so well-backed and so well-founded. It has so many sources and so many people buy into it. Guys, maybe the problem is not the rapid spread of anything. Maybe it's that we don't know the truth. 
Maybe it's just so hard to discern the truth anymore that we want to throw our hands up. When away, there's some wisdom in that. If we don't know the truth, don't speak. And people say, well, why don't you address this? Or why don't you address that? Or why don't you say this from the pulpit? Because I don't know. Here's what I know. I've never read a Bible verse that wasn't true. I'm sure of that. I have never read a Bible verse that wasn't true. So if I stand in the pulpit and I preach the Bible, guess what? I, I, I'm good. I can't lose. I, I can be a fool in a bald guy who's way too animated sometimes. And I'm watching myself on the screen and here I'm doing. The, yeah, I, but, I, but I'm not. I, I can't be wrong. Not because I'm right. But because the scriptures have never been false. So here's what I'm going to say. If. Love encompasses your heart without anger or bitterness. And if you choose to speak, to respond rather than react, then if you run what you're going to say through the scripture and it comes out clean, speak on. Speak on. Till then. Better be silent and thought a fool. Here's my prayer. My prayer is that as we have to be apart for a week, a month, six months, as we go in and out of a sanctuary that we just want more of, that we just need more of, that you would do this. That you would choose to make your words builders. That you would choose to make your words something that was a gift to people. Look down through this list, find a phone number, find an address, and tell them how awesome it was to see their kids next to them on the couch. Tell them how awesome it was to see them snuggled up next to their spouse. Tell them how amazing it was just to see their face that you haven't seen in months. Tell them how awesome it was to see a face you've never seen before. Tell somebody something good. Something good. Before the book ever released, about two nights before, a, a Facebook message that I was tagged in came across my Facebook at about 1030 at night. Most of you probably never saw it. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't need anybody to see it. I saw it. And basically, here's what it said. I was a personal trainer in Virginia for two years. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. And and. Um, I worked in this incredible little studio with about six to eight people. All right. And, um, you know, the, the guys were all muscular and, and, and not me. And the girls were, you know, fairly attractive and super fit and all this stuff. And, but we were, we were all buddies, but nobody in the group was really in each other's lives, you know? And, uh, one of the youngest of these uh, trainers, when we were in the gym together and there was nobody there, we just work out together. And so one day I'm working out uh, with this young lady. I was like, hey, I'm getting ready to do back and shoulders and stuff. You want to do that? And she says, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And so we're working out. <laughs> I think she was doing um, chin-ups. And she says, um, I don't want this to be weird, but I have your CD. I was like, what in the world? And it turns out that she was a part of a youth group that had seen me in several different places. And so this person that I'm now working out with is uh, a, 
a fan, which, you know, could have weirded us both out, but she, it wasn't weird. It was, you know, I was okay. You know, uh, by that time I had been, I'd been hurt by life. I'd been hurt by the church. I just wanted to, I just wanted to love God and love people in restaurants and other places, but I didn't know what she was about to say next was true. But the next line was, she says, I was overwhelmingly amazed to figure out that this guy was the exact same guy on the stage and in the books and in the CD as he was in the gym. And I've never forgotten that. And I'm going to tell you that it'll be a long time before I forget that two minutes it took her to post something I never knew to encourage me from something I did years ago that was way better than saying your book is awesome or your CD is awesome or I loved you as a speaker as a kid. That, that gave me life and breath that night in my spirit. I'm asking you to give life and breath to each other because we need it. Don't engage, disengage. Find truth and find it passionately. And if you don't know where to look, start with the book. We love you guys. I'm so thankful for you.